Hey there, it's Adam, the pastor at Melbourne Heights, and welcome to our sermon podcast. This week's podcast is the first one of 2019, so thanks for spending part of your new year with us. And before we dive into this week's sermon, I want to let you know about what you can expect in the podcast over the next few weeks. As 2019 begins, we are going to be digging deeper into the Gospel of Matthew, or Matthew's biography of Jesus. We're going to be exploring some of the events of Jesus' life, like his birth and his baptism, as well as looking at some of the things that Jesus taught in places like the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to go deeper to see what these passages and stories tell us about who God is so that we can grow closer to God together. So without any further ado, let's dive into the story of Jesus' birth and ask the question together, what child is this? Well, since it's the first Sunday of a new year, it feels appropriate to start out the sermon by doing something a little different, and it's probably going to feel a little bit strange to you this morning. I want you to reach into your pockets, your purses, wherever you have them stashed out, and pull out your cell phone especially if you've got a smart one like mine. I'm going to ask you to do this not because I'm going to tell you to turn it off or silence your phone or set it on airplane mode. I actually want you to do the opposite. I haven't done this for a while, but thought it'd be a good chance to do it again today. I want you, on your phone, turn it on and find the folder where your pictures are stored at. Not your camera, but the actual place on your phone where you look at all of the pretty pictures you've taken over the years. Okay? I know it's a little shocking that I'm asking you to do this in church for a moment, but just go with me for a minute. We'll see how things go. Now, according to Facebook, there are over 2 billion pictures uploaded every single year onto their social media site. So I'm willing to guess that if you have a smartphone in your pocket, you've got more than a few pictures on your camera this morning. So I'm wondering this morning, as we get started out, how many pictures you have on your camera roll this morning? And since I'm asking you the question, it's only fair if I answer it first. Right now, on my camera roll, I have 1,124 pictures on my camera on my phone this morning. All right? How many of you have at least 1,124 pictures on your phone right now? There's like half a dozen of you, so, man, I'm in fine company, as they would say this morning. How many of you have over 2,000 pictures on your phone right now? How many of you have over 3,000 pictures on your phone right now? Can you win? Congratulations. (laughs) The most pictures on your phone this morning. Well, again, like I said, Facebook says over 2 billion pictures get uploaded to their social media site every single year. So I figured we were going to have a whole lot of pictures among us this morning. But right now I want you to maybe flip through some of these pictures. Think about some of the pictures that you have on your phone because I've got a couple of questions that I want to ask you about the pictures you have on your camera this morning. The first thing I want to know is out of all the pictures on your phone, how many of you have have at least one selfie on your phone right now? You know what a selfie is, right? It is a picture that you took of yourself. How many of you have at least one selfie? Hold your hand up high. Everybody needs to see it, okay? I cannot believe that that many of you are audacious enough to have pictures of yourself on your phone. Seriously. What kind of person actually takes a selfie of themselves? Okay, well, yeah, I I can kind of explain that one back there. Because it's not really a selfie. It's not just me. I'm hanging out with one of my favorite cartoon characters at Universal Studios. And I was on vacation. And it doesn't count when it's on vacation. It's kind of like the calories that you eat when you're away. They just don't count when... Okay, I'll admit it. I'm the kind of person that takes the occasional 
selfie. But everybody else does it too. So you're bound, if you take many pictures on your phone, you're bound to have some selfies stored in your photo roll. But there's another type of picture that none of us ever wants to see when we're flipping back through our photo roll. We never want to see a picture where somebody photobombed us. You know what a photobomb is, right? It's where somebody just pops up in the background of a picture that you had set out and you had planned perfectly. So how many of you have ever found a picture on your phone that you've taken where you got photobombed? I've got a few of those on my phone, too. And we're gonna, we'll show you a picture of one in a minute, but first I've got to set you the background for the picture that I'm going to show you. The picture I'm going to show you in a second, it was taken while Ashley and I were away on our last vacation at Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida. And while we were there, walking through one of the parks, I saw one of the props from my all-time favorite movie series, my all-time favorite movie franchise, Back to the Future. So at Universal Studios, they have the train from Back to the Future Part 3 that they turn into a time machine. And I decided that I had to have my picture taken in front of this fabulous prop from my all-time favorite movies. So I asked Ashley to take my camera and to take my picture on it, and we're going to show you the result of it right now. Now, it's kind of small and it's kind of hard to see, but over top of my right shoulder in that picture, I got photobombed by Dr. Emmett Brown, who is the scientist in the Back to the Future series, the one who invents time travel. So this dude could have been any place in history, and he photobombs my picture. The nerve of some people could have been anywhere, and he shows up in my picture. Okay, so we've talked about selfies, we've talked about photo bombs, and there's at least one other type of picture that's pretty prominent on social media, even to this day. So my next question for you is, how many of you have a picture of food on your phone? I've got some pictures of food on my phone, too. <coughs> but I've got to tell you, I don't take pictures of food for the same reason that a lot of people take pictures of food on their phone. A lot of people take pictures of the food on their phone because they want to show off what they're eating. They've gone someplace rare. They're experiencing something they've never had before. But I took pictures of most of the food that I have on my phone for the same reason that parents have been taking pictures since cameras were invented. I took pictures of food on my phone to embarrass my daughter when she grows up and gets a little bit older. So I have pictures of Hannah eating ice cream and having it all over her face. I have pictures of Hannah eating birthday cake with it everywhere. But the picture that we're going to show you in just a second is my absolute favorite. So let's go ahead and put that one up too. This is a picture of Hannah with a macaroni noodle on her phone. And yes, my first thought when she had a noodle on her nose wasn't, here, let me clean her up. It was, I got to get the camera. <laughs> That's just the kind of dad I am. Right, Hannah? <coughs> All right. That's right. When I saw that noodle on, the phone, on her nose, I just had to grab my phone and take a picture. But aside from taking pictures so that someday we can embarrass our kids or so that I can use them for sermon illustrations someplace down the road, why do you think we take so many pictures? Why do we as people take so many pictures? Well, there's a professional photographer named Monica Schulman who actually shared some of the reasons why she takes pictures in an article that she wrote for the Huffington Post several years ago. And I think most of us would agree with her reasons as a professional photographer for why she takes pictures. They're the same reason that we take pictures today. 
So the first reason that Monica says that we take pictures is we take pictures because they make us feel something. Pictures make us feel something. So you take pictures at birthday parties because there's a happiness that's going on at that birthday party and it makes you feel that when you look back on the picture. Or you take a picture of a sunset because you feel awe when you look out at that great sunset. Or you take a picture because you are satisfied with a job well done. I can't tell you how many pictures over the last couple of weeks I've seen of grown men like myself on Facebook who have completed a Lego build since they got a toy for Christmas. And why do they take these pictures? It's because they're satisfied with a job well done. There is just some feeling that makes us want to reach out and grab our phones whenever we take a picture. And we want to capture that memory. We want to capture that moment. And that leads into the second reason why we take so many pictures. We take so many pictures because we want to hold on to memories. Let's just be honest here. There are only so many first days of school. There are only so many holiday celebrations. There are only so many moments of unbridled joy in our lives. And when these moments are over, they're over. So we want to find some way that we can hold on to these memories and these moments just a little bit longer. So we take pictures of them. So we can look back and remember them again. And the final reason why we take pictures, according to Monica Schulman, is that we take pictures because pictures tell us stories. There's something about pictures that transport us to another time and another place. There's something about pictures that remind us of something that goes far beyond what we actually see on the image that is sitting on our cell phone screens or in an old photo album collecting dust in our house. Now, I have a picture like that that has been sitting on the shelf in my office for over a decade. It was taken on a Sunday afternoon while Ashley and I were on our honeymoon in Hawaii. Now, just hearing the word Hawaii, that probably conjures up certain pictures in your head because if you have ever been to Hawaii or if you have ever seen pictures from anyone who has ever been to Hawaii, they all look pretty much the same. Everybody who has ever been to Hawaii comes back with pictures of the beach, and they have pictures of the oceans. Everyone who has ever been to Hawaii comes back with pictures of, uh, that were taken while they were snorkeling above some coral reef. Everybody who's ever been to Hawaii comes back with pictures of luau's, with the ubiquitous pictures of hula dancers in the background. Everybody who's ever been to Hawaii seems to come back with pictures from their tour of the Dole Plantation, showing the pineapples they grow there or the ice cream they ate. Everybody who's been to Hawaii seems to come back with pictures of the historical sites there, like Pearl Harbor, or the natural wonders that you find there, like Diamond Head. But the picture I'm going to show you this morning isn't like any of those kind of pictures. As a matter of fact, I'm willing to guarantee you that no one else has ever come back from their honeymoon in Hawaii with a picture quite like this one. So David, let's go ahead and put that picture up on the screen. Now, this has been in my office for a decade, and I think I've shown it in a sermon before, so you've probably seen this picture. You may have seen this picture somewhere over the years. But this is a pretty simple picture. It's a picture like you probably have on your camera right now. I'm standing on the, in the middle of it, and I have two sweet little ladies standing on other, either side of me. So at first glance, there is nothing special about this picture. It's like pictures that we take all the time when we get together with our family and our friends. But there's so much more to the story of this picture than what you actually see up on the screen behind me. You see, 
23 years before this picture was taken, when I was just a toddler, I was part of the church that these women attended. It was the church that my family was members of when my dad was stationed in Hawaii. So those two women standing on either side of me who will barely make it up to my chest, they used to take care of me when I was down below their knees. They knew me when I was a kid. They even changed my diapers, and they were kind enough to remind me of that 23 years later when I bumped into them. But that's the thing about pictures. Pictures, as they say, are really worth a thousand words. Pictures capture so much more than just the images that we can see on a screen. Pictures capture moments in time. Pictures capture unique experiences. Pictures capture memories. Pictures capture stories for us. I think that's why we take so many pictures when we go on trips. Because these pictures remind us of a certain sight or smell or taste or sound. And they can automatically transport us back to a specific moment. Just by looking at this picture up on the screen behind me, I can remember everything about that day. I can remember everything about that moment. Because a picture tells a story that is worth more than just a picture. A picture tells a story that is worth more than just a picture. Now, unfortunately, when it comes to the Bible, there weren't cell phones or Polaroids or any other kind of cameras around in those times. But just because we don't have photographic evidence of what happened inside of Scripture, it doesn't mean that the authors weren't still painting pictures for us with the stories they told and the words that they used and the way they shared these events. One of our favorite biblical pictures every single year inside of the church is the picture that we all get in our minds of what the birth of Jesus was like. Every one of us has certain images and ideas in our minds of what it must have been like when Jesus was born. And although we weren't around the manger when he actually came into this world, we all have an idea of what that must have. And the scripture that we're going to be looking at for this morning is one of those passages that has helped us form some of our mental image over the years of what Jesus must have been like as a baby and as a toddler. So go ahead and grab your Bible, whether you've got a printed one like mine or an app on your phone, and let me encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Now let me remind you, Matthew is what we call a gospel, and we call it a gospel because the word gospel means good news. And inside of the book of Matthew, we hear the good news of Jesus' birth, his life, his ministry, his miracles, his death, his crucifixion, his resurrection. So we call it a gospel because Matthew tells us the good news of Jesus' life. And in the story we're going to look at this morning, we hear a little bit about what it was like for Jesus as a baby, as a small child. Matthew chapter 2, we'll start reading in verse 1. This is what he writes. Matthew writes, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the territory of Judea, during the rule of King Herod, magi, or wise men, came from the east to Jerusalem. They asked, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east, and we've come so that we can honor him. When King Herod heard this, he was troubled by it, and everyone in Jerusalem was troubled with him. So he gathered all the chief priests and legal experts, and he asked them where the Christ was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what the prophet wrote. 
You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, by no means are you least among the rulers of Judah, because from you will come one who governs, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi, and he found out from them when the star had first appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, go and search carefully for the child. When you found him, report to me, so that I too may go and honor him. When the wise men heard the king, they went and looked. The star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stood over the place where the child was born. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and they saw the child with, his Mary, with Mary, his mother. Falling to their knees, they honored him. Then they opened their treasure chest and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Because they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back to their own country by another route. Can you picture the story that I just read? Can you imagine what it must have looked like? You have magi or wise men in the story who have set off from the east and they are traveling to the west after a miraculous star has appeared. But even more miraculous perhaps than the star appearing in the sky is the fact that the wise men know exactly what the star is telling them. They know that it is showing them the way to a newborn king. So the Magi begin their trip. They cover hundreds, maybe even thousands of miles to see this newborn king, crossing field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. And finally, they come to Israel. They come to Israel. And can you imagine the spectacle that it must have been when the wise men showed up outside of King Herod's palace? You see, the Magi, they would have been immaculately dressed. They would have been wearing the finest fabric they could afford and jewels, jewels that were more precious than we can imagine. And not only that, they came in riding on expensive animals that were well-suited to handle all of the miles they had traveled over the years because not everyone in that time would have owned or even seen a camel. And then can you imagine the look on Herod's face? especially when the wise men told him what they had come to Israel looking for. They had come to find a king. So imagine how he felt as the self-proclaimed king of the Jews to find out that there was another king in town. And then picture the priests when Herod asks them where this newborn king was supposed to come into the world. But then... You can also imagine the joy that's on the wise men's face when they heard where this star was leading them to, when they heard that they were finally on the verge of finding this king that they had been searching for for months, maybe even years. How elated they must have felt knowing that that search had almost reached an end. And then imagine Mary and Joseph. Imagine Mary and Joseph and the looks on their faces when these three wise men show up outside their door. Just imagine when they knock on that front door and Mary or Joseph goes and opens it. What the look on their face when they see these three guys, as church history has told us, standing right outside of the door. Now you think Herod would have been impressed by the wise men. Mary or Joseph probably almost fainted when they saw these men standing outside their doors. And then think of how they must have reacted 
when the wise men started handing them gifts, when they opened the presents and they found gold and frankincense and myrrh, because I'm pretty sure that for a poor young couple, they had never received gifts like that before. It wasn't every day or any day that they got gold and frankincense and myrrh. Are these the kind of things that you picture in your brain when you see, when you read this story? Are these the kind of scenes that you imagine with camels and crowns and magi and miraculous stars and the little town of Bethlehem? But it's exactly what the wise men could have seen when they were making this trip. It's the kind of pictures that they could have taken if they had smartphones or cameras along on the journey. These are the kind of images that they could have preserved in the proverbial cloud for all of eternity instead of me saving pictures of my daughter with noodles on her nose to embarrass her in the future. But these images that we imagine in our mind are just the tip of the iceberg of what this story means. Remember what I told you a little while ago. A picture tells us so much more than what we see in just a picture. Like the, pic- the last picture that I showed you this morning. That picture that was taken when Ashley and I were on our honeymoon in Hawaii, a picture that was taken at the church that my family attended decades ago. But there's more to the story than what you see inside of the picture. Because you see, long before that picture was taken, months before we even arrived in Hawaii, Ashley and I decided that one of the things that we were going to do when we went to Hawaii is that we were going to go and visit this church. And it was off the beaten path. Matter of fact, when we found the taxi driver outside of our hotel and told him where we were going, he had to call somebody else to figure it out. Never heard of the place before. So we made the decision that we were going to go, but nobody in that entire place knew that we were coming. Nobody knew we were coming. Even when we pulled up outside and the taxi dropped us off, no one knew who was arriving inside of their doors that morning. morning. And even when we plopped down in the back row of the sanctuary because we're good Baptists and that's where you sit when you visit a church, no one understood exactly who we were. I imagine it was kind of the same way when Jesus arrived on the earth. There were only a couple of people in the entire world that knew that Jesus was coming. And even Mary and Joseph didn't know exactly when he'd arrive, because if they did, I think Mary would have kept from making that journey to Bethlehem. And even when Jesus arrives, I don't think anyone ever really understood who he was. So when I try to imagine this scene with Mary and Joseph, with the shepherds and the wise men, I can almost hear them asking the same question that the hymnist William C. Scott does in a hymn that we sang earlier this morning, his famous hymn, What Child Is This? What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, who angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing. So haste, haste to bring him love the babe, the son, Mary. What I want to know this morning from you is, do you understand who this child is that we spent the last month preparing for? Do you really understand who this newborn king is? Do you understand why the Magi left everything behind and traveled for years just to see this baby? 
Do you get what it means for Jesus to show up in that manger millennia ago? Because it means so much more than we hear inside of the story in Matthew's Gospel. It means that God, God, the God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in them came to us. It means that God, God, the real God, the God that made everything we see, including us, became one of us. The creator of our universe, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, loved us enough to become one of us. God wanted to know our joys and our triumphs. God wanted to share in our pain and our failures. God wanted to share in our lives fully from birth to death. So to put it simply, God wanted to be with us, so God became one of us. Do you get that? When you hear the story, do you understand what Matthew is telling us in this familiar passage of Scripture we listen to year after year. Because what Matthew is telling us is that God really came down to the earth and became a human being. I hope you understand that. I hope you get it. But I also want you to realize that this is just the tip of the iceberg of what it means for us to start asking the question, what child is this? This understanding that God wanted to be with us so God became one of us, it's just the beginning of what it means when we ask the question of what we're going to find when we really seek after what child is this? This question, what child is this, is so important that we're going to keep digging into it over the next few weeks to find out more about what Matthew tells us about who Jesus is. But it's our journey begins this morning to better understand what child this is, who Jesus really is. I want you to realize the same thing that the wise men did all those centuries ago. When Jesus was born, God arrived on earth. And God did it because God loves you so much. God loves you so much that he became like you just to be with you, just so you can be with him. Let's pray together. God, we do thank you for the time that we've had in this place this morning and the reminder of what this story that we've heard so many times before tells us about you. When the wise men came to see Jesus, they found you, the God of the heavens and the earth, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, walking this earth. God, we thank you that you came to this earth to become one of us so that we can become closer to you. God, let us never forget what that means. Let us truly appreciate what it means that you came down and walked this earth. We pray it in your son's name. Amen. Hey there, it's Adam again, and thanks for listening to this week's sermon. We hope it helped you learn a little bit more about who God is and helped you grow a little closer to God as well. 
In our next episode, we're going to continue digging deeper into the stories from Jesus' life by exploring what his baptism teaches us about who God is. That episode will drop next Tuesday morning. And if you'll go ahead and subscribe, it'll be sent straight to your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, let me encourage you to take a second and write a review. Your review means a lot, and it will help other people find this podcast and grow closer to God, too. I hope you have a blessed week, and we'll see you next Tuesday.